This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. And welcome back to another episode of the Cooler Jets podcast. We're your host, Ben Blessington and Michael Nania. Michael Jets fans can take a sigh of relief. Finally, Zach Wilson and the Jets have come to an agreement on his rookie contract. Michael, your initial thoughts. It's just a relief. You know, as soon as you saw that tweet from Rappaport, it's like just a big sigh of relief and you don't have to, you don't have to worry about it anymore. This distraction is just a thing of the past. We're going to forget it ever happened as soon as tomorrow. Um, And it felt like a long time already, but ultimately it's only going to amount to two practices missed. So it wasn't a huge deal on two on field practices. Um, so ultimately we'll forget about it and it won't be a big deal. It was a petty thing that shouldn't have happened, but uh, it's not something that's going to matter. It's time to go now. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, this podcast is sponsored by Canadip CBD. Uh, I, I think it was bad from a PR perspective more so than anything, but you have to remember the first few days of training camp, they're just redoing the install that they did in mini camp, you know, so Wilson's already gotten that. And he's been in contact with Michael Floor and Robert Sala. And it was obviously a question of when, not if. There was really not much doubt in my mind that he was going to get signed before Saturday's practice. Um, I can't imagine that the Jets would roll him out there in front of the or roll the team out there in front of the fans with no Zach Wilson. Um, it's you know, it's a bit strange that they would wait this long to do it. The report that came out that Zach Wilson even put on a story, which kind of adds some validity to it, is that the Jets um, didn't even uh, open negotiations until this week and they wanted to defer 6 million of his signing bonus until 2022. Wilson says, no, like the other quarterbacks, like he did with Darnold. Um, I want all that signing bonus now. And the jets also wanted to put in some offset language and the compromise is basically the jets get the offset language. Wilson gets a signing bonus, which seems like that should have been the compromise from the beginning. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to know the exact inner workings of the jets, you know, salary structure and exactly what was going on behind the scenes. It seems ridiculous though. That it's like, you have three months to get this done. It's not the big deal. It's not the biggest deal. And you know, at the end of the day, he missed two on field practices. He was still in meetings today. We're all going to forget in a week that he even missed anything. I honestly forgot that Darnold held out until this whole story resurfaced. So, uh, and Darnold held out, I think until Saturday's practice. So Darnold missed three practices. So not the end of the world. Um, glad it's done. Uh, and, you know, from a PR perspective, it sucks. And from it was probably a bit of a distraction. Um, but finally, we get to see some training camp Zach Wilson tweets, which, Michael, I don't know about you, but I've been waiting for these um, since since he got drafted. I mean, the mini camp tweets helped me over for the last six weeks. But the training camp tweets, when I get the real passing numbers, that's that's where the good stuff comes out. Um, a few other notes, you know, because we've had to watch or you know read tweets about James Morgan and Mike White the last few days. It's very clear that the Jets' backup quarterback situation is in bad shape at the moment. And look, I mean, James Morgan at this point is basically a rookie. Didn't get any uh, real offseason activities last year. Had no preseason. So it's a new scheme. So the the lumps are expected. Um, Mike White had a little bit of a better day. But it's very clear that the Jets are going to have to add a veteran quarterback. They they brought in Josh Johnson and Sean Mannion for a workout. Part of it was maybe – didn't know how long the Zach Wilson dilemma was going to go on. You need, you know, you don't want to burn out Morgan and White's arms, but at the same time, I think they probably knew that the Wilson deal was going to get done. So I think Johnson and, and Mannion are legit um, competition that are going to come in and compete for that backup spot. Michael, what numbers, if any, do you have on these two guys? Obviously I'm a little bit partial to Sean Mannion, the Oregon state beef. 
Um, but also Josh Johnson's had some success um, and some, some success in Florham Park in a green and white uniform a few years ago, having a good preseason. So do you like those guys? And do you think it's a significant upgrade over James Morgan and Mike White? Well, one thing that stood out with both of them is that they do, they both do have a little bit of a connection to Mike LaFleur and this offense. Uh, Josh Johnson was with the Niners last season, had a cup of tea with them. And Sean Mannion played with the Rams for the past uh, – well, he's with the Vikings past couple of years, but played with Sean McVay for a few years. Obviously, McVay comes from the same coaching tree, the Shanahan coaching tree, as Mike LaFleur does. So they both have that experience in the offense, which is obviously important if you're going to add a player in the later stages of the offseason. Um, but in terms of production, I think we have to be completely honest. Both of these guys have been really bad. I, I kind of expected to see better numbers from them before digging into it, but there isn't much to like. Johnson has eight touchdowns and 14 picks in his career, 61.7 passer rating. He's 1-7 and seven as a starter. Mannion is 0-3 as a starter. He has zero touchdowns and three picks in his career. So it's, it's, you're not getting much in terms right. of production out of these guys, but at least they have experience in the offense. But I, I think the hope is that you know James Morgan or Mike White being younger guys, uh, although White, White isn't too young, he's 26, but he hasn't played in the regular season yet. Um, I think you're hoping that one of these guys can develop into something better as a backup then um then one of those two guys are one of the backups that you could pick up off the street but there are bigger name backups you could look at nick Foles could become available um blake bortles is out there so there are better options in terms of backups but ideally i think you'd like to see one of the younger guys take a leap and just at least be you know competent because those numbers that i just brought up you know, that's that's pretty bad even though they're veterans they've experienced that that's not good performance. It, you're not going to yeah. win games with those two guys. So hopefully one of them, uh, White or Morgan can develop, but to get one of those two in there, just to add competition, a little bit more experience to the mix. Uh, it, it wouldn't hurt. Yeah. Certainly scraping the bottom of the barrel um, to find any sort of veteran quarterback. But I think the reason that they brought those two in particularly over a guy like Blake Bortles, like you said, is because they both have some experience in this type of offense. It's not going to be um, as much of a learning curve. I think ultimately, unless Josh Johnson has a great pre, I think out of the two, I think Johnson's the one that'll get signed. Um, I like his as much as I like Sean Mannion for for being a beeve. I think Johnson's the better player, um, and he you know he had a good little stint here in preseason. Obviously, those stats don't get included, um, but I, I still don't think either of them make the final roster. I think maybe they survive the initial fifty three cut. But I, I still think that once a guy like Brian Hoyer shakes free or maybe Nick Foles shakes free, like you said, once the better veteran options shake free, I think that might be when they um, can bring them in. I mean, it really does come down to how much they value the experience in the scheme, which I know it makes sense right now. But, you know, if a guy like Nick Foles gets cut, you know, two weeks before the season starts, I think that's when you – or a week before the season starts, I think – you know, you spring him in and then you hope Wilson doesn't get hurt for the first month of the season or whatnot, let him learn the playbook. Um, but I don't mind it. I, I think they do end up bringing one of those guys in. Um, it's a bummer about Morgan, but again, you have to remember, it's like, look, guys had no experience. He was supposed to be a project. We'll learn a lot more about him in the preseason games. And I guess you're just looking to see improvement throughout training camp. We were hoping that he could be ready to be a quarterback too, but it's the, those expectations really aren't fair considering he didn't get any pre he's seen literally no action. So a QB three rule makes more sense for him, but it seems like Mike white um, is having the better camp of the two throughout two days in, in pathless practices. So we'll see how that storyline develops. The other one piece of news that came out yesterday was that the jets were working out Jordan Matthews, the former receiver for the Eagles and the bills um, converted to tight end. The jets bring him in for a workout. Obviously the jets tight end spot is um, pretty barren. Um, we're going to talk about the position a little bit later in this podcast. Michael, what do you think about the uh, potential addition of Jordan Matthews? Does that move the needle for you? Or do you think he's just a camp body? I actually do think this is kind of interesting. And, and ultimately, of course, I don't think he will make the team just because the odds of something like that panning out are not great. But uh, I'm, I'm interested to see what he does with this switch because, you know, the game he played a wide receiver as a physical big red zone threat kind of lends itself well to making this transition to tight end he's put on 30 pounds he was up to uh, there was a video in mid-july where he was at 236 he weighed in um so he's got his weight up 
and it seems like he's fully committed to it. He was at the tight end university camp that George Kittle uh-huh. hosted. He tried out for teams as a tight end. His agent is known for uh, working with some of the biggest tight ends in the league. So it seems like he's bought into it. He kind of has some familiarity with Michael Floor. He's with the Niners the past couple of years on their practice squad last season, although he, he didn't play much with them the regular season, only three games, and he didn't get targeted. Um, but but he was there, so he does have a little bit of familiarity. Um, and obviously this is, you know, if you're a tight end trying to, you know, make a team, this is one of the best teams in the league to try out for with not a ton of depth at this position. So it's definitely a good opportunity for him. But uh, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what he does because he was a great red zone threat with the Eagles. He actually had the eighth most red zone touchdowns among wide receivers in the league over his first two seasons. Then he kind of tapered off after that and bounced around the league. But um, I'm interested to see what he does. This is a flyer that I definitely think is uh, worth taking a look at. So ultimately, of course, I'm not going to predict him to make the team. That would be a very hot take. But uh, I'm interested to see if he can at least get signed to the roster, get himself involved, and get the chance to make some plays in the preseason. I don't know if it's a crazy hot take, Michael. I mean, I think we have to see him at that tight end spot with the added weight, how does he look as a blocker first and foremost? Right. Um, but, you know, he he's an okay receiver, but an okay receiver, you put him at tight end, might be a, a good receiving tight end. So we'll see what the Jets can do with him. You have to keep, keep in mind the Niners kept a ton of tight ends last year, and I think the Jets are lacking depth there. I think, you know, if the Jets do go deeper at tight end, it would be a battle between him and Kenny Yaboa for that receiving tight end, not necessarily a blocker. From a youth perspective, you'd hope that Yaboa would win that that battle. But like you said, hey, Matthews went to tight end university. Maybe he's picked up some stuff. My only big memory of, of Jordan Matthews, and Michael, I don't know if you remember this, was 2017 uh, week one where Kevin Harlan just kept mixing up Jermaine Curse and Jordan Matthews' names because they'd just both been recently added. I do remember that. <laughs> so it was like Jermaine Curse had a big game. And he was like, that's Jordan Matthews. And he's like, Curse. Um, so that's the only real memory I have of Jordan Matthews. But um, a veteran receiver. I, if he's a camp body, I like it. And we'll see if he can make any noise. The big it's question. Funny, I guess- it's funny you bring that up because I just want to make a quick Kevin Harlan point. He, he has some classic moments, a lot of classic moments, and he's great overall, but he is a little bit susceptible to mixing up names. Okay. It was, it was week the one, one weakness in his game. It was, it was week one. He was, but, but was I do rusty. think even, even in addition to that, there, it's kind of been a little bit of a recurring issue for him, but he's still he's still a superstar. I think. Flamed Kevin Harlan like that. Okay, Mike. I'm not flaming. It's just a, just a little little point to me. At some point, I think we've done this before in the podcast. We might have to redo our uh, our top five announcer rankings because I think Kevin Harlan has has worked his way onto my list for sure. Um, I think he's up there. I think he's up there. Everyone has a little hole in their game. And, and speaking of hole in their game, Jordan Matthews and the <laughs> run segment. blocking is I think a, a good point you bring up because as a receiver, he really wasn't great as a blocker, even as a bigger receiver at 6'3", 215, he consistently graded as a pretty average, sometimes below average run blocker. Um, so blocking at tight end, even though he's bulked up now is, you know, a question mark. And especially in this offense, it's going to be a huge part of this position um, for these tight ends to be able to block in the run game. So that's the biggest question mark for him, but uh, as as a receiver, I'm definitely intrigued to see what he does. So this this is one that I'll be keeping an eye on. You know, it's a bit relevant to this point, just about you when you look at San Francisco, how many tight ends they carried, and they really valued that versatile tight end fullback, being able to to show a big run heavy formation and run deep play action um, uh, off of it. We talked about it in our Zach Wilson podcast, kind of like what do you think this Jets offense will look like with him? That's the number one thing I'm fascinated about. I mean, I we're not going to get a great look at it in preseason because it's generally pretty vanilla offenses, basic concepts. Um, but I'm just so fascinated about how Michael floor plans to run this offense. Because like you said last week, it's like the strength of this offense personnel wise is not the strength of a typical West coast, or at least a typical Shanahan offense. Um, I mean, they have a good offensive line. I guess they have a solid group of running backs. The quarterback position seems pretty great for, for a, a West coast offense, but between the tight end, the fullback, 
not much talent there, which is really, we really want a lot of strength and versatility. And then there's a ton of talent at receiver, which it was maybe not as important in, in this offense. So I'm fascinated to see what Mike LaFleur's version is going to look like compared to Kyle Shanahan, compared to Sean McVay, compared to his brother, compared to Arthur Smith, compared to those, all those other wide zone West coast offenses. What does Mike LaFleur's look like with this personnel? Jordan Matthews, I think, like you said, probably won't make the roster, but I wouldn't count against it. If he makes a noise, with uh, Mike White or Josh Johnson throwing the ball in preseason, you can maybe see him move up the depth chart, provide some depth, be a little fun receiving H-back off uh, option, give the Jets some versatility at that tight end spot. Um, the other piece of news, and this hasn't really come to effect um, throughout the first two practices since George Fan tested positive for COVID, um, but Robert Saul acknowledged that the right tackle spot is going to be an open competition between Moses and Fant, which I think was interesting because a lot of people assume more – I mean – Coaches always like to preach competition, but it seemed like Moses was, was going to be handed that right tackle spot. Um, the pads haven't come on yet, so it's hard to get a good feel of how he's necessarily performing. There's a big run to the right side yesterday, so take that with a grain of salt. But um, if there's a true right tackle competition, Michael, you've talked about how, in theory, George Fant fits the scheme better, but also Morgan Moses is probably the better player. We've talked about this a lot, but how do you think they balance that, especially if it is going to be a true uh, training camp competition. Yeah, I'm excited to watch this play out. And I, I think even though most of us assumed Moses was coming in to start a right tackle, which I definitely did, um, his contract number wasn't that big or isn't that big. He only got $3.6 million base salary, which is right in the neighborhood of some of the other mid-tier linemen on the team, Alex Lewis, Van Roten, even Dan Feeney. So he didn't get guaranteed starter money. So that possibility was always there. And that's a fraction of what fan is making this year. So um, it'll be fun to watch because it's an interesting dilemma where you have fan, a guy who projects really well in this scheme. And then you have Moses, a guy who's more established, more durable, experienced, and probably the better player overall, but isn't as perfect of a scheme fit. I don't think he's a bad scheme fit. He definitely is a better athlete than I think his numbers uh, his combine numbers led on, but he's not as of as much of a shoe in of a fit as I think George Fant is. And a big reason I think Fant is a great fit is in addition to the obvious advantage of his athleticism. And I, I believe we talked about this before, or I've mentioned it before. Yeah, is that, preview. is that yeah that he's a really good backside blocker, and I think that's what he did the best. And if you assume the Jets are going to be running very heavily to the left side behind Becton and Elijah Vera Tucker then that allows George Fant's blocking on the backside to shine. He does a really good job of um, – to uh, when the defender's lined up over his inside shoulder, he does a great job of getting his hips around him, sealing that guy to the backside so he can't pursue the run from behind and make a play. So that complements really well the strength that you have on that left side of the line. So in addition to just you know him flat out being a good athlete, I think that skill plays well with what they have – the talent they have on the left side of the line. So – I like fan this offense quite a bit, but Morgan Moses is a, a solid right tackle and George fan, as much as I like him, hasn't necessarily proven to be at that level yet. So it'll be an interesting competition, but no matter who wins, I think the jets can feel good knowing they're going to have one of the best backup tackles in the league. So that's the biggest thing about the Moses signing. We'll see how this competition plays out, but either way your backup is going to be Moses or fan instead of, Chuma Idoga or Connor McDermott. Right. And that's where the upgrade is coming in. Definitely. And I think that when Fan does get into camp, I'll be curious to see if they do maybe not employ it as the starting lineup, but do try to give Moses or Fan some reps of guard just to see the different lineups, what they could look like. Um, just because I think the goal is to get your best five out there. And there's a good chance that there is there is a chance that Fant or Moses even if they lose the competition is still a better right guard than Greg Van Roten or Alex Lewis or whoever plays there. Um, so curious to see once they get in um, to camp, once Fant gets into camp uh, and is healthy, how do they rotate the snaps between the, the two right tackles? Do they give one a day with the starters, the other day with the starters, they try them out at different, do they give them reps at guard? Um, just kind of curious to see how that whole situation plays out. Or like you said, just, you know, have the competition, whoever loses, you're going to have a great swing tackle. You can do a lot of different stuff. Use that six offensive line, maybe more than other teams do um, because your tight ends aren't as strong. Instead of going 12 personnel, you go six offensive linemen. Um, 
Let's go over some studs and duds over the first two days. We're recording this Thursday night. Generally speaking, our podcast should come out Monday and Thursday. Last night, Michael and I were talking. We we're just like, all right, I think Zach Wilson's going to sign tomorrow, so we don't want this podcast to be completely out of date. So that's why this one's coming out on Friday. But we've had two days of practice to kind of talk about Michael. Um, and you'll be going to, to train camp practice next week, so you have a little bit more of an in-person insight and see what you um, see. Um, but studs and duds from the first two days of training camp practice. Um, I guess we'll start with a stud. Um, it seems like Michael Carter has had a pretty good opening to training camp and has a firm grasp on at least maintaining a, a heavy workload in that running back room. Obviously no running back is going to be um, a bell cow. There's certainly going to be a running back by committee approach, but a lot of beat reporters have raved about Carter's shiftiness, his fitness offense. He's had a few nice runs. Um, and look, if the jets are getting, starting production out of their first four picks. I mean, that's almost unheard of. Um, so really nice job. Obviously we love the strategy with the draft, but if, if it's hitting the field and looking good, Michael Carter would love that pick, Michael. Um, how do you just feel about his fit in this offense? And, and maybe if, you know, could the jets go a little bit away from the whole running back by committee approach? If they do find a guy who's really having a lot of success with the unit, we didn't see that too much in San Francisco, but uh, Michael Carter is just a guy who really, really fit this unit. And you can see in that, that jets uh, was it flight 2021 documentary that this, this front office was in love with Michael Carter and could not believe he was there. Yeah. I think he definitely is a really good fit in this offense because we saw a lot of examples of him making plays in wide zone in wide zone calls at North Carolina. So uh, we've seen him make, make big plays in run calls that are similar to what the Jets will be running. And from a numbers perspective, there's one little niche that I really like is that Carter's best gap running the ball last year was to the outside shoulder of the left guard. And, you know, you just brought in Elijah Vera Tucker. He led USC to some great production um, to his outside shoulder and he's playing left guard in 2019. Uh, So you combine those two guys together and it's exciting to think about and Becton, over there too so it's exciting to think about that and i'm i'm sure that's something that they noticed that you know michael carter is having all this success running to the left guard now let's put him behind our first round pick it's it's a really intriguing matchup and, and like you said i could see obviously i think the basis of this offense is going to be that committee approach to start out but if carter gets to that point where he's just the clear number one guy you, he is a, he has that three down potential, I think, because he is a good Definitely. pass blocker. Um, he, he's not necessarily he's not Derrick Henry. He's not going to run people over. He's a pretty small guy. He's really small. He's only five. Who does eight. he remind you of? If you had to compare, uh, it's tough to think how about because I just mentioned the size. Like he's really small. I don't know if I could think of a guy who's that. If you if you think of one, let me know because it's probably just skipping my mind. But a guy who's that small, who's an every down back, um, yeah. But I think he can be an every down back because even though his power isn't necessarily amazing, he definitely has some of it in his game and his ability to be a pass catcher and a, a good pass blocker allows him to stay on the field in any situation. So uh, I think he can eventually develop into that every down guy. Uh, but I, I'm actually gonna look at do some research here i'm gonna find right. some short running backs well i was gonna say the the shortest running back that comes to mind there's i mean obviously there's a few um because that's one of those positions you can really benefit from being lower to the ground it's harder for defenders to see you have good leverage i mean doug martin is a guy who had some success early in his career yeah. muscle hamster muscle hamster uh, ray rice before the off-field incidents was having success it's a smaller running back um if you want a little bit more shiftier but not all every down running back i mean obviously there's Got like Tariq Cohen in recent years. So, uh, but as far as the every down guys, I mean, Martin Rice, the first two that come to mind, obviously there's, um, you know, Barry Sanders is a small back. Obviously we're not comparing Michael Carter to Barry Sanders, but um, it's certainly doable. I think because of this, well, we'll see him on the field. I was going to say because of the size, there are going to be questions about if he can be an every down back, but, you know, clearly he can be a, a, a big part of this rotation. Uh, and like you said, I'm, I'm excited to see him on third downs and how that pass blocking transitions um, or translates from college to the pros. Cause that's always a big thing where it's like running backs who protect well in college, like Michael P Ryan had this reputation. He did all right last year, protecting the quarterback, but there's a lot of running backs who come out with this reputation of being good pass protectors and they get to the NFL and they just don't look like they know what they're doing at all. I'm curious to see how Michael Carter 
um, stands in that regard and, and which running back by the end of camp will be that, that leaned on as that third down pass blocking running back. Cause I think Coleman is going to be the third down receiving option. You can flex him out to the slot. You can do a lot of fun things with him, but who's going to be the guy that if it is a third and 12 or whatever, and you need a first down and you want to have a running back out there for whatever reason, who's the guy that you're trusting can, can, you know, pick up that linebacker. Um, because if Carter can bring that type of value, I think, I think you're right. I don't think the height holds him back or the size holds him back. He can definitely be an every down back. Michael, you have any, uh, any comparisons in mind? So I, I brought up some of the short running backs who have been successful over the past decade because, again, Carter's 5'8". Um, and there are some good ones on here. Maurice Jones-Drew at 5'7". Oh, forgot about him. He's really successful. And a guy who did contribute in the passing game a lot, like Carter can do. Um, so he's a good one. You mentioned Ray Rice. A couple of current ones, Aaron Jones and Philip Lindsay. Aaron Jones, 5'9", Philip Lindsay, 5'8". Uh, I don't think Lindsay's a great comparison though, because Lindsay is probably the worst passing game running back in the league. Right. He's a terrible right. pass blocker and drops a lot of passes. Look at Jones in this offense though. Um, but Jones, on the other hand, is definitely a guy who can, you know, is even at his size, is able to really pound the rock, score a lot of touchdowns at the goal line, uh, and does provide some passing game value. So, Aaron Jones, maybe that's one to keep an that's, eye on. That's that's a good, yeah that's a great ceiling pick. And the other thing is that they both I'm, I'm actually surprised Aaron Jones is that small because he plays big and Michael Carter, when you watch him in college plays, the same. he doesn't look like he's five, eight. Um, unless you see him. He's that, big for five, eight. He's yeah. two Oh one. Well, and he's got like big athletic legs and a big frame and like, he's a strong five, eight, but he plays like that. And I think that's the same thing with Aaron Jones. So that's a really nice ceiling comparison for the jets. Obviously as a rookie, you can't expect that, but um, moving on to the duds and look, these are two days of padless training camp practices. We'll see how these guys develop. Um, but somebody who's kind of continued the downward trend, I guess, from uh, from mini camp, or at least has lost a bit of, of hype, uh, especially the hype that he had going into the offseason, which was Denzel Mims, who was definitely more of a fit in Adam Gase's offense, more of a linear deep threat, can win the jump balls. Um, and this offense is clearly his, his run blocking, or not his run blocking, excuse me, his route running um, is going to need to improve and the intermediate and short aspects of the game, but clearly he has the athleticism to do so. But the reason he's on the duds list um, is the, he's had a few drops and, you know, it seems like he's certainly going to be keep running with the twos for the foreseeable future, but all the potential in the world, a second year player, uh, he can certainly develop into a player that even if he's not, a, doesn't become a perfect scheme fit that Michael floor is going to have to, to design plays for um, because he certainly has tangible skills. You saw it last year that he's not a bum. Denzel Mims is not a bum. Is it Kenny be an every down starting receiver, hopefully number one receiver that's remains to be seen, but he certainly is at this point in his career, at the very least great depth, great jump ball guy. You can put him on uh, deep routes, can put him in the red zone, but is he going to be a perfect fit in this offense remains to be seen, but he's got to work on the drops. Cause that isn't something that we saw um, too much last year. Michael, what are your thoughts on Denzel Mims and his, his two day training camp struggle? Well, I, I love the the moniker that he's not a bum because for a Jets post first round wide receiver pick, that's definitely a big comp- accomplishment. They drafted plenty of yeah, he's already better than Stephen Helms. He's better than Chad Hansen. He's better than Ardarius Stewart. So thumbs up to that. But uh, I actually think I did an article on it recently. I think he's a better fit in this offense than a lot of people give him credit for because we think first when you mentioned Mims, the first thing you think of is the jump balls and the red zone, uh, obviously not necessarily with the jets in the red zone, more so what he did in college, but you think of his size and the jump ball ability and the verticality, but really where he made his best impact last year was with his yards after the catch on short and intermediate throws, whether it was just little drag routes or slants or digs, that's where he was really the most productive. And it's why he was one of the most efficient receivers in the league on short passes less than 10 yards downfield because he's making a lot of those grabs over the middle and making plays after the catch, just being able to halt his momentum, make guys miss, uh, keep going. And that's where you really saw his speed more so than vertically on go routes is when he was catching the ball in stride that you saw his speed stand out. So I think he's better fit than given credit for Um, the floor is definitely. And of course he knows more than I do, than any of us do. If he says Mims needs to improve his route running, if he wants to go on um, a recorded team program that's going to go out in public and say that he needs to improve his route running, then of course he does. And I agree with that. 
But at the same time, I feel like on scheme touches over the middle, he's a really good playmaker. He showed that last season. But if he's going to become that true star, then like LaFleur pointed out, definitely he's got to be able to win some more of those routes over the middle. Can you get yourself open in situations where you're not just going to be naturally opened up by the scheme? That's going to be what determines how high his ceiling goes. But I think he's already shown you that he can be, if you get the ball in his hands over the middle, or if you can give him a chance in jump ball situations, then his physical talent can really show up. Yeah. And the other thing that helps him out is because if he can establish himself as a deep threat, those underneath um, routes do open up for you. You don't have to be an ama- You don't have to be Antonio Brown or hell Elijah Moore. We'll use him for an example. Um, and you're underneath route running. If, if you can establish yourself as a legitimate deep threat, cornerback's going to bail on you. They're going to bite on your double moves. Um, so I, I agree with you. I think that, the um, I, I felt bad about putting Denzel Mims in the duds list. It was really just the name of the segment. I don't think he deserves it. I think that heading into the offseason, he had a lot of hype. That's clearly come down a little bit with the all the additions at receiver and some of the hype that the other guys have been getting uh, and the fact that he's running with the twos. But make no mistake about it, Denzel Mims' career has not been written yet. Uh, I really do believe in him. I think his ceiling uh, is incredibly high. He was drafted as a guy who might be a little bit raw in the route running aspect, but he has a full offseason. Um, working with Miles Austin, he has some some good vets in that room as well. I think you're going to see him as a guy who develops throughout the season and, and does make an impact um, by the end of the season. And I do think Denzel Mims does become a big contributor. I think maybe he isn't the week one number two receiver that we thought he might be, but I think by the end of the season, he's going to be a guy who's definitely contributing because he's just too talented not to. And like you said, um, he's a better scheme fit than given credit for. And the beauty of this offense supposedly is that you're going to blend. It has obviously all the same West coast wide zone concepts, but you're going to blend it around the personnel you have. And if you have a player like Denzel Mims, that's that talented, not to use an Adam Gase phrase, but that big of a unicorn. I mean, Michael Flores compared him to Kevin Durant, the way he's able to to jump and utilize his wingspan. You have to find and, and create plays around players like that. Uh, another guy who had a, uh, or a guy who had a great practice uh, yesterday, Carl Lawson. And it's always funny it's like this every time in training camp. That's why it's always nice to see him go up against somebody else in practice or in preseason is it's like, there's always a pro and a con. And the pro is that Carl Lawson uh, was beating everybody like a drum today or yesterday um, and had multiple sacks and looked great. And that's like, all right, the jets might after two practices might actually have an okay edge rusher, uh, hopefully a very legitimate edge rusher con to that is like, all right, well, was he beating Mekhi Becton there for a few plays? That's a bit of a con, but I think the, the solace in that is that you already know Makai Becton can be a good player in this league, and I guess you're going to hope to see uh, maybe uh, maybe Becton have a dominant day today or tomorrow, whatever it is, and maybe Carl Lawson's a little bit stifled. And just have it, you, you want to have that back and forth because you know as much as I think the Elijah Moore mini camp hype was, hype was warranted, and I think he is going to be a good player. In the back of my head, I'm wondering, I was like, well, how much of that is because our corners are really bad? Um, so it's like there's always that battle in training camp about how good as a player doing versus how bad is it who he's going up against you don't really get a better feel of that until preseason um but for now jets fans you can take some happiness in the fact that oh we actually have a, an edge rusher who's getting sacks and not just you know a sack a game every few games he's getting multiple sacks in a practice we'll see if that translates to the field michael your thoughts on carl lawson yeah like you said there's always um it's a two-way street with anything that happens and, uh, you know, in these training camp practices, if someone does something good, then conversely, someone on the other side probably did something bad. Obviously, there are some exceptions, like if there's, you know, really good coverage and someone makes a contested throw or if you have a great pass against great coverage. But, you know, there are a lot of these instances where it's like this one guy did something great. So that means someone else. He had to beat someone else to do it. So I don't recall seeing many reports about Becton playing poorly, but. Lawson does generally line up on the right side of the defensive line and go up against the left tackle. So you would assume he was doing it against Becton unless he was getting those sacks against the second team. It was Edoga or McDermott or someone else. Uh, they have a few undrafted tackles who could be playing there. Um, so but it's great to see Lawson dominating. We definitely have not had an edge rusher with the dominant potential that he has or even close to it in recent years. So Definitely positive to see him in the early goings living up to uh, the potential of the contract that he signed. And and also, if it is against Becton, as much as we want to see Becton play well, it also is a nice indicator for Lawson because Becton is good competition. So it goes both ways. We'd like to see Becton play well against Lawson, but it's a good test for Lawson too. But 
Um, it, it's definitely good to see him dominating early on. Anytime a defensive player stands out in practice, I think it's more impressive than an offensive player because practices are pretty – when you're not playing in pads, especially, practices are conducive to offensive success, I feel like. So if you're standing out as a defensive player in some way, I feel like that is uh, – it's more impressive than if an offensive player does. I think it's a good point. And I'm not just trying to sign, sound hyperbolic based off of practice, but I definitely would buy stock in Carl Lawson. Um, I just think he's such a perfect scheme fit. I think you definitely saw with the amount of pressures he got last year. He's worked a lot on this finishing. We'll see how it translates to the field, but I definitely think he's in store for a big year. Um, another guy who's maybe had an underwhelming start to the, to the first two days of training camp, and maybe not necessarily from his on-field perspective, just uh, performance, just more so his, uh, his status. And that's Chris Herndon, who I think many Jets fans were hoping, and he still could earn that starting tight end spot. But clearly, based off minicamp, Tyler Croft is going to be the tight end number one um, for at least the beginning of training camp. We'll see how injuries affect things or if Herndon can start to make an impact and work his way back up to tight end number one. Um, Michael, your thoughts on Chris Herndon? I mean, I, I mean, best case scenario is that both Herndon and Croft play really well, and the Jets actually can play some 12 personnel. But Herndon's just a guy who is so talented in 2018 and – you know, 2019, his whole season basically got taken away. And 2020 just seemed like a psychological issue for him. He's, he certainly got better towards the end of the season. And this is supposed to be the year where it's like, you're going to, who is Chris Herndon? I mean, he went to tight end university, like you said, over the off season. Um, this is a very tight end friendly offense. I'm sure LaFleur is starving for any sort of tight end production. So if he can be anything, this is the year to see it for him. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on Herndon and, and, Croft taking over for that starting tight end spot. I, I think Croft definitely has the edge because I feel like that they are going to lean heavily on the wide receivers in terms of where they're going to be throwing the ball. So with the tight end position kind of de-emphasized in the passing game, I feel like they're going to value run blocking more. And that's where Croft ha definitely has the edge over this tight end group by a pretty wide margin. Um, but Chris Herndon, I think, will still be in the mix because Chris Herndon has the edge by a wide margin in terms of receiving ability and upside in that area. So I feel like the, the snaps will be pretty mixed. We've had a few conversations trying to predict starts on this podcast for the tight end position. And we always go like eight and eight, eight and nine, ten and seven. But in terms of how the starts will be split between those two guys. Uh, so I feel like the snaps will be pretty close with them, too. I'm not sure how much they're going to play together. Because I do think this will be an 11 personnel heavy offense and they won't do a ton of two tight ends. Um, so I think it'll be a pretty good rotation between those two guys based on down distance and situation with Herndon being your more passing game centric player because he's a good pass blocker. Obviously your best receiver at the position um, and Croft being the more run game centric player. And obviously you, you never want to lean too heavily into those things because you don't want to be predictable you don't want to you know, run the ball 90% of the time and you've Croft in there and then vice versa turned in the passing game. But, you know, you lean into it a little bit. You lean a little bit more towards the run game with Croft in there and a little bit more towards the passing game with Herndon in there. So I feel like that you'll see a pretty good platoon between those Definitely. two guys. I think it's a smart point you just made. I do think that that is why Croft might get the edge. And look, if Chris Herndon wants to get in the field more, he's going to have to, to improve that run blocking. Cause I am really not as concerned about him as a receiver, even though he had some lumps last year. Um, he did make some, some pretty impressive catches as the season went on. Um, but yeah, if he wants to be, be on the field, he has to improve as a run blocker. So the jets aren't as one dimensional when he's on the field. And what gives me hope there is that he's been a solid pass blocker. So he's not completely inept. And the other thing is, is the last time Chris Herndon was in this sort of offense, obviously not, completely the same was his rookie year with Jeremy Bates, where they did run a lot of West coast under center type of stuff. I think Herndon is the perfect post case breakout candidate. Um, you know, look, I, I tend to be optimistic about this team and about half of, if not more of it does not come true. So you always have to measure expectations and try to find the guys most likely not to produce, which would make sense why Chris Herndon wouldn't necessarily come through, but I still believe in him. I still think that there's potential there. Um, maybe not as a tight end one, maybe we don't know that yet. Um, but I still think that at the very least, Chris Herndon can be a very solid tight end two in this league, uh, if not a tight end one. Um, another good point on Herndon with the run blocking. Yeah. I actually think uh, I think we talked about the scheme, how it benefits a few of these linemen in terms of the run scheme. I think Herndon maybe in the run game could benefit from it because 
the reason he's good as a pass blocker, not a run blocker, is because he has good technique and he knows what he's doing and he's willing. So that helps him in the passing game where you don't really have to be forceful and create movement. You just got to be in the right position. And in the run game, he he does carry that over. It's just he's not really uh, like a people mover. He doesn't he's not a forceful dominant blocker. And so when you're running a lot of inside zone like the Jets were the past couple of years, uh, or at least last year with Adam Gase, uh, it's you know, that's where he could kind of struggle a little bit because you want your guys to create some movement to make those plays happen. But in an outside zone scheme where it's a little bit more athleticism based and just around or just more based on, you know, hook around your defender, seal them to the backside. You don't necessarily need your tight ends to create a ton of movement. It's a little bit more positioning based then it could benefit, benefit him a little bit. And that's not to say movement doesn't matter even in this type of scheme. Of course it does, but I think it more so than the offense they were running. It is a little bit more predicated upon positioning and athleticism than it is, than it is on, you know, just creating forceful movement. So I think that should benefit him too. So we'll see if maybe even his run blocking could improve uh, with the coaching change. Another guy who had a, an impressive day yesterday was Brandon Eccles, who had a pick six on James Morgan, who we're about to talk about next. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, I think that, you know, there's a very open competition between all these young rookies that have come in. And if anybody, you know, the thing that's like, you know, Robert Sala said this, said this, that they're like hell on wheels. And it's like between Brandon Eccles, Michael Carter, the second, Jason Pinnock, Tom's and Nazaldine and Jamie and Sherwood. You just hoping one of them hits, you know, honestly, I, I mean, obviously it'd be great if many of them could hit, but if, if the jets can just hit on one of those guys, I think they're in pretty good shape. Maybe hopefully two, maybe a linebacker in a corner. And Eccles was the guy out of the three corners that I think I was, the least sure about um but the reports are that the jets are pretty high on him and i think he has definitely the ability to carve himself out a role i mean the jets cornerback position is so weak i i originally viewed him as more of a making a special teams impact um but michael i mean do you see Eccles competing more for that slot corner spot or do you see him more as maybe the outside corner although he you know he he's not necessarily the big type of corner that robert Sala likes but it seems like a lot of his experience has been on the outside well, I'm I'm glad to see this play because Eccles has kind of been the been the odd man out of the cornerbacks they drafted. There's been hype for everyone else, whether it's Isaiah Dunn as an undrafted free agent, Pinnock with his length on the outside, and then Carter the second in the slot competing with Gidry. Eccles has kind of been outside the mix and hasn't had a lot of hype. So to see him make the pick six off of Morgan generates some positive vibes for that is a good thing for him. Uh, even though it was a pretty, it, it appeared to be a pretty bad throw by James Morgan. Yeah, you, you don't, don't really nice. see the whole thing. You don't have to be nice. It was a bad throw. But we, we know I won't be nice to guys if they don't deserve it. But um, but it, it was good to see the energy, the positive energy for him because he's kind of not gotten much attention. But in terms of where he's going to play, that'll be really interesting. Uh, at least in this rep, it seemed like he was on the outside against Corey Davis. Um, so it could be that he's sticking there, but that's really been the whole discussion with Eccles throughout the off season. It's like, is he outside? Is he inside? Because he played outside in college, but his frame, you know, standing in like 5'10", 180, lends him to playing in the slot. He also doesn't have much length either, only 12th percentile arms, 30 and a quarter inches. So that's a slot corner frame, but he's playing all outside at Kentucky. And, you know, it, Definitely seems like Carter the second and Gidry are the guys competing in there. So he is that sort of tweener defensive back, and maybe that serves him well. Maybe versatility is his calling card. The fact that he can do both, um, and his athletic his athletic numbers were really good in terms of his forty time. He had a four thirty six. His vertical jump, broad jump, three cone were all really good. So I th- I feel like versatility could be the calling card for him. You know, he doesn't this will hold him back from being maybe a long-term starter because, you know, if you're going to start, you'd like to have a defined position, defined skills, but the fact that he can probably do multiple things because of his frame and experience is, could help him a lot as a backup. And then he could also be a good special teams player because of his athleticism. So um, it'll be interesting to see where he fits in because more so than anyone else, uh, more than any of these draft picks, he's he's the biggest tweener of the defensive or right. the defensive players they drafted. Everyone else, it kind of is easy to see where they'll fit in, but for him, there are a few different ways it could go. 
Yeah, definitely. And, and look, I mean, hey, Darrell Rivas is the Jets' most accomplished outside corner. He's also 5'11". I mean, he has 20 pounds on Eccles. But um, I think the thing is that the stereotypical Robert Saul outside corner is that big-bodied um, press bail zone corner. And Eccles, you know, we'll see how he fits. But I, I, I agree with you. I think he's probably more of a slot guy. Um, but look, they're going to try to get their best corners on the field. So I think he's well in the mix in that, that slot battle between Michael Carter, the third or Michael Carter, the second and Javelin Guidry. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him get some outside reps, um, as well. The last dud, uh, we'll talk about, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here after uh, a brief, uh, little debate. Um, James Morgan, I mean, not much else to say. Uh, we kind of covered a little bit. I, I will pose this question to you and we talked about it a little beforehand. I mean, what is your realistic best case scenario for James Morgan. So not the scenario where he turns out that he's Tom Brady and the jets can either start him or trade him for a boatload of picks after an amazing preseason. I mean, after what we've seen, it's probably not going to happen. But after kind of what we've seen from a season of what we did, we got some training camp practices last year, no preseason games. We've had a mini camp and some, uh, some training camp practices Um, this so far. We haven't seen him in a preseason game, but based off the player that he is, the type of, of strength that he has, how do you feel like he fits this offense? And then what do you kind of think is a realistic ceiling for James Morgan's career at this point? Because it seems like a lot of Jets fans are pretty down on him, even after just uh, two practices of him starting. Yeah, we, we were talking about this before, and I think what we both settled on is that we, we just like to see him be a competent backup. And, and you know, evaluating backup quarterbacks, you got to temper your expectations. There's a reason they're backup quarterbacks and not starting quarterbacks, so they're never going to be good, but there is still a spectrum for backup quarterbacks. You know, you could have, like we talked about, Sean Mannion's and Josh Johnson's numbers. You could have guys go 1-7 and seven or 0-3 and, and throw zero touchdowns. You could have that, or you could have guys – like Nick Foles, like Ryan Fitzpatrick, who've come in and been not terrible or, you know, passable, keeping your offensive flow, or like Joe Flacco last season, which you brought up, I think is a good, um, a good, a good bar for James Morgan to shoot for. Joe Flacco came in last season. I don't think anyone would say he was good, but, you know, the Jets were still able to play football and run the well, offense. He looked better than Darnold. And he will look better than the starting quarterback. So I think that's a good comparison, even in terms of play style, which I'm not going to steal this one from you because you brought it up. That's why I'm mentioning it. So you can talk about no, it go ahead. a little go bit. Ahead. But, but yeah, in terms of play style, you know, Flacco is a pocket passer, bigger guy like James Morgan. Um, but I think that is interesting in terms of scheme fit. He is kind of like Piran. Um, seems like he's drafted more so for an Adam Gase offense than I think, you know, what they'll be running now. So it, it will be interesting to see how he fits into this. But uh, I, th- I think that's what you're trying to shoot for. Just just be an okay backup. We're, we don't need you to be, you know, the next Dak Prescott or anything like that out of the fourth round. But just just be competent. And, right. you know, the pick six he threw in practice today isn't really on that track. But <laughs> he is essentially a rookie. He's going to be playing his first preseason right. games. Um, last season's offseason was drastically short and even without the preseason games just the practices outside of that there was no rookie mini camp um so he's even for a second year player not that experienced so we'll see what happens but i think that's all you want to see just be an okay backup yeah i mean i've seen the uh the 2020 class come under some scrutiny and i think the good thing about joe douglas is he definitely marries the front office to the coaching staff and and the benefit of that is that you're you're always working towards one goal, one vision. You know, it seems like the big problem with the Jets the last decade or so is that they've had a lot of contradictory moves. They've had uh, moves that just don't really make much sense and cohesiveness. And they didn't really guy didn't fit the scheme or why would you draft this guy? If you already have this guy on the roster, you know, a good example is how they uh, allocated assets, to the defensive line uh, where it's like Quinn Williams. I'm very happy to just have him. Um, and I not, wouldn't necessarily, change that pick in retrospect but it's like you have leonard williams before that you had sheldon richardson when you brought leonard williams in you had muhammad wilkerson you'd already drafted quentin cope they i mean they kept addressing the defensive line because okay best player available but it's like okay at a certain point you have to move on you have to try to build a team towards a vision the thing i like about joe douglas is now with robert sala who is a coaching staff i believe in and the scheme i believe in 
I really think you're going to start to get a, a brand of Jets football. And we haven't had that. They've just, the Jets have had no identity for the last decade. And I, you know, when you think of a Buffalo Bill player, you know what a Buffalo Bill player looks like. When you think of a Pittsburgh Steelers player, you know what a Pittsburgh Steelers player looks like. They have an identity and the Jets have not had that. When you have a coaching staff married to a front office, you get that. You have, okay, that's a Jet. I mean, that goes back to Rex Ryan's mantra, play like a Jet. I mean, that is a, a Jets football player right there. Um, when you marry the scheme in the front office. But the downside of that is that last year's draft, you see a few guys that on the surface maybe aren't completely ideal scheme fits from Mims um, to James Morgan to uh, Michael Pirine. They clearly draft. Now, look, that doesn't completely apply because I think Mekhi Becton's a great scheme fit. I think Bryce Hall is a, a very good scheme fit. Um, but I think you see some guys who are going to have to carve themselves out uh, their own role. Um, but look, even if the Jets just hit on Makai Becton and another player, let's just say Bryce Hall, even if they, if they get starters out of Becton, a good starters in Becton and Hall, still a solid draft class. Like I think it's still a good draft class. Um, and I think the other thing Michael and I were talking about, not to get too far off on a tangent is when you judge a draft class or judge a, a GM, I think you have to judge the process more than the outcome, you know, because you never really can predict how things are going to go. What's going to happen in a player's career, the injuries are going to suffer, whatever, you just have to judge them based off the process they went through. Look, if you have a few years of a horrific outcome after horrific outcome, then maybe you can make a change, but you have to look at the process. And when it's like, okay, Kai Beckton, great pick Denzel Mims, even if it doesn't work out, which I do think it will I'm not going to hate on it. Cause he was a scheme fit. They traded down. He was tremendous value, huge need. And he's been talented. You know, I think that checks the boxes. I love the Denzel Mims pick, even though he might not be a starting receiver for the jets. Ashton Davis, I criticize a little bit, but it's like, okay, well, if he's as a first round grade on your board and you were uncertain about Marcus May's contract situation, you think he could be a May replacement, makes sense, etc. You know, uh, so that's kind of how I'm viewing that draft class. And with James Morgan, the thought process there was great fit in, in Adam Gates's offense. They thought that, look, the Patriots are definitely going to be interested in him. They felt that um, he could develop into a very good backup that you could then if he performed well in the, the preseason, you could flip him for some picks. And if not, you have a good backup that is going to be good in the quarterback room because apparently he's a good film guy, good camaraderie guy, whatever. That's the process. I don't love that process, but I at least understand that decision. I think you can cur- definitely criticize that pick because I don't think that was the best process for the team, especially where it was at. Um, but when you look at the draft class as a whole, I still think – I love the 2021 draft a lot more. Um, but I think the 2020 class – there's a caveat there because it was definitely influenced heavily by Adam Gase and Greg Williams. Michael, before we get out of here, um, we have five training camp battles and we're going to make our predictions for who will be the opening day starter. And by the end of training camp, we'll look at it and see how we did. Um, I want to start with running back. Who do you think opening day week one is the Jets starting running back? I'm going to go with Michael Carter. Yeah. I, I second that as well. I think that even though it's going to be running back by committee, I think that, uh, this kid's certainly going to impress, and and the Jets are not going to be afraid to start four rookies in offense, and hell, maybe even two on defense. Um, sticking with the offense, receiver number two on the outside. Talked a lot about Denzel Mims. Seems like Keelan Cole's been getting the reps there. How do you see the Jets' uh, outside uh, number two receiver um, panning out as, as far as a starter week one? I think even, even though Elijah Moore – probably be you know lining up the slot motioning a lot i think he is essentially going to be the wide receiver too i think he'll play the second most snaps and if not leading the team in targets be in that conversation with Corey davis so i really and he can play on the outside he did it in college so I i think he is going to see a pretty healthy split where he's lining up where he's just all over the place so I really think Moore is going to essentially be that second wide receiver. And then the rotation will really come beyond that in, in the slot with uh, Crowder and Cole. And then Denzel Mims also can rotate into the game and Moore kicks into the slot. So I, I think Elijah Moore is really going to be the wide receiver yeah. too. Yeah, I, we're just too agreeable because I definitely – I agree with that. I think that Moore is going to be um, a very – a big part of this Jets offense. Uh, And I think that even, I think the Jets are definitely going to explore having him and Crowder on the field at the same time, using a lot of jet motions, getting the ball in their hands. Um, I think Moore is definitely going to have an impact. And I think you're right. I think he will start on the outside. Um, I think the question mark there is if you're going to have both him and Crowder on the field, if you want to do some of the things like wide receiver screens, you know, how does the blocking come into, to uh, 
into effect here because we've talked about how it's a receiver heavy um, team. And if you're going to go with 11 personnel, but you still want to run some of those West coast concepts where you can run the football, you reasoning would say that you'd want your best run blocking receivers out there. And I think Crowder and Moore definitely aren't that Davis certainly is. So that would be the only hiccup. I think in terms of targets, Moore is going to be second behind Davis, maybe even number one, but if the jets are going to focus on, if we're just going based off week one, starting lineup, first down first and 10 against the Carolina Panthers. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it was Keelan Cole, but right now I'll, I'll stick with Elijah Moore uh, weak linebacker. I think this one might be, we, we might actually disagree with, because I'm going to say Hamza Nasruddin, the rookie, which is a bit of a hot take, not too bad. It's between Nasruddin Sherwood and Cashman. I think I know where you're going, but I think Nasruddin out of the three of them has the highest upset. And I think uh, Robert Tull is going to try um, to form him into a, a legit linebacker in this league. I think they see Sherwood maybe more as um, the eventual Mike linebacker, maybe even replacing Gerard Davis after uh, a year or two. Um, I, he'll certainly get his reps there, but I think Nasruddin is handmade for that weak linebacker spot. Uh, this might be a hot take. I feel like most people have kind of counted him out. I'm going to go with Blake Cashman. I think he's going to be the guy to take that third linebacker spot. You know, he's a, He's actually a pure linebacker. The other two have potential, but they're converting over from safety. They're day three picks. Nazar Dean's coming off of an injury, uh, which he did return from near the end of the season, but, uh, you know, still is kind of recovering from that to an extent. Um, and Sherwood kind of has athleticism deficiencies that he's going to have to overcome. So I'm going to go with Blake Cashman. I consider myself a Blake Cashman guy. That doesn't mean I think he's good or he's going to be a great player, but I think there are some intriguing things he showed to work off of. Um, as long as he can stay healthy, I think his experience is going to win him out against a couple of late-round rookies who are transitioning positions. But it wouldn't surprise me if it were either Sherwood or Nazaldine at all, considering that they were picks by this regime. But I'm I'm going to go with Cashman. I know it's a little bit of a surprise pick, but I think he's going to be the third guy in that linebacker rotation. Lastly, and I'm going to lump these two together because they're both corners. Who do you think is going to be the outside of Bryce Hall, which seems like a shoe at this point, corner number two, and then the nickel corner, corner number three? Corner number two, I'm going to go with – I'll just list my answers here, and then you could follow up. Right. I won't give descriptions. So I'll go – Cornerback two, I'm going to go with Jason Pinnock. Nickel corner, I'll go with Javelin Gidry. Well, we completely disagree on that because I'm going Bless Austin and Michael Carter II, which I think is probably the obvious answer because that's been who's starting so far. Um, but I think Austin, one, has the, is the most veteran corner on this team, surprisingly enough. Um, if, or I guess we're not using veteran if we have to go back to that debate. Um, but certainly has the most amount of, of snaps. Uh, and I think he actually is a, a – fairly good fit in this offense. You look at what he did towards the end of 2019 when he got some of the same hype that Bryce Hall has been getting. I think a lot of the zone concept coming down, um, making stops against the run, you know, the thing with both him and Hall and these Robert Sala corners, you want big guys, but you want guys who are fearless and aren't afraid to get involved in the running game. Um, especially if you're only going to rush four. I think Austin out of the, out of all those guys is the best run defender. And I think that's, what's going to win him. I also think he's a good zone corner. He's entering year three. Um, I think he ultimately wins that job. And I think Michael Carter, the second, Hey, he's gotten some reviews. I almost put him in the studs list. He's gotten some good reviews, um, so far out of training camp. So I think, I think he was drafted with the, the intention of, uh, of being the starter nickel corner. That's why the jets didn't bring back Brian Poole. Um, so I think he, he opens it up. I think it's going to be a tight race between Gidry Eccles and, and Carter, the second, I think he ultimately gets the nod though. I think the, the duo that you listed is probably most likely, I just want to be out there. A little bit, although I do feel pretty good about Pinnock at corner too, just because I'm not a huge fan. Bless Austin, I think Pinnock is a really tailor made fit to this defense, um, more so than Austin, I think, because they're both tall, lengthy guys. But I feel like Austin's really hasn't shown much of anything as a press guy. He can he can do some decent stuff when he's playing off. Sometimes he does still miss a lot of tackles and bust up. Uh, not necessarily bust coverages, but his technique, even in off coverage, isn't great. But with Pinnock at Pittsburgh, he played a lot of press bail, you know, pressing the line and then dropping back 
into cover three or, or whatever they were playing. Um, so I feel like he's a little bit more of a natural scheme fit. And also there is, again, the regime advantage with him being drafted by this general manager and this coaching staff, whereas Austin was neither of those things. So I think you're probably right. Austin will get it because of the experience advantage. But I, I do kind of like Pinnock there. And then in the slot, um, I'm just a Javelin Gidry guy. I like what he did last season. I'm a Carter the second guy too. So he has some great film and fantastic numbers at Duke. And he's been one of, uh, if not the most impressive defensive back of the offseason so far. So I absolutely could see him doing it too. But I'm I'm going the opposite with you. So with the corner, right. there's corner two, I'm going with the, the rookie. And in the nickel, I'm going with the more experienced guy, um, whereas you went the opposite. But uh, your prediction isn't bad at all. It's probably the most likely one. Right. I, I'm very confident in Michael Carter II. I also – I'll extend a little olive, uh, olive branch here. I think that Bless Austin will be the starting outside corner week one. I think Pinnock will be the starting outside corner alongside Bryce Hall week 18. So I think there's going to be a little yeah. bit of a transition there. I just think it'll probably happen during the season for the rookie. Um, but like you said, I think Pinnock has the higher ceiling, has the general manager behind him. Um, I think he's ultimately going to take over for Austin unless Austin's really impressing, but I, I, I doubt that'll be the case, but I think to open up the season, Austin will be the guy. And we've seen that the last two seasons and injuries played a part in it, but in 2019, you know, Tremaine Johnson starts the season, less Austin finishes it. And then last Wait. year, Pierre Desir starts the season and Bryce Hall finishes it. So, right. uh, so we've seen already seen the last two years, right. an example of veteran starts the season and yes, Jermaine Johnson, he's a veteran. Pierre Desir is a veteran. Um, veteran starts the season, then the rookie, late-round rookie, finishes it later on. So yeah. I feel like we could see that again. Definitely. I think Pinnock is, is the uh, heir to uh, to Bryce Hall's throne. Uh, Hall is the big X factor in that group. I mean, if he can be anything, this this defense is in good shape. If if the entire cornerback position is a shit show, then I don't know how good the, the t- entire team is going to be. But if the – if if Hall is okay and they can get some solid production out of the rookies and the young guys, I think this this defense can be very good. Um, we're going to get out of here. Um, we'll be back on Monday. Um, I We do have a bit of an ad read to do here. But, um, yeah, the Jets have practices uh, today when this podcast comes out, Saturday, and then we'll have Monday. We'll be talking um, more Jets football, and we'll be back on our Monday-Thursday schedule, we promise. Um, you can follow us at Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can follow Michael at Michael underscore Nandy and myself at Ben W. Blessington. Go to jetsxfactor.com for the best Jets content out there. Um, please rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes. It helps podcasts out a ton. Um, and then, yeah, if you would like to potentially win a sweepstakes to go to whatever Jets game of your choice this season, maybe the Jets-Panthers game, it's not Zach Wilson's uncle sweepstakes. It's brought to you by uh, – Canada CBD, which is the nation's leading tobacco and nicotine free dip alternative with CBD. And they're excited to present the game of the year, um, which is one winner chosen by August 31st. Um, if you go to CanadaPCBD.com and click the link or visit Canada's main Instagram and look for the blue check mark, one winner will be chosen and can bring a plus one to any regular NFL season game, which includes airfare for two and luxury hotel lodging, um, including great seats for the game. Um, Canada CBD is a fast acting and innovative way to consume CBD that works and tastes great and won't make you play sneak with the wife during football season. That's right. Candidates is randomly choosing one lucky winner for the fan experience of a lifetime. So head to candidatescbd.com and enter, or go to the official at candidates, Instagram and type it all the way out to find the blue check account. Um, Michael, if you could go to any game this season, what would it be free, free a cop? I mean, if you could choose one game to go to, what would it be? London? That, that's what came to mind first because it would be so unique. So I'm already going to the first two games. I have tickets to the Carolina game and the home opener against New England. So I'm ex- very, very excited about those. Um, beyond that, though, I guess London comes to mind first just because just that would be such a unique experience. Um, but other than that, the first one that came to mind was the Jacksonville game. I feel like Wilson versus Lawrence could be one that we look back on in a long time as, you know, the start of maybe a, a long time AFC rivalry. Um, in terms of road games, um, are there are there any road games that stand out to you? Well, I'm trying to think. The obvious one is the Panthers. I know you already talked about it. Yeah. And I was just thinking about it. That game could not be any bigger for the Jets. I just think that that will define, I mean, maybe not define, 
but it'll really set the tone for the season. Because even if they if they win that game and then let's say they lose the next three, I still think the vibe around let's say they, they win the game in a, in a good fat not like an ugly six to nothing win. like you know zach wilson plays well the jets shut down sam darnold like a good win for the team um that just sets the vibe for the entire season and it's definitely an unusually high stakes game for an I, I because it's like if if you win that and they lose the next few games it's like all right well look this is still a rebuilding team but robert Sauce, they got the right stuff if the jets go out there and lose to the quarterback they just traded away and controversially traded away in some people's minds obviously not in jets fans minds it just the, the vibe and the all the energy it's not going to be completely sucked away i i certainly think the jets as the season goes on and the team gets more mature are going to improve but it'll just set the whole same old jets of course you trade your quarterback and you lose to whatever um, I just think that's such a big game. So if I could choose any game, that would be the game. I mean, hell, maybe hell, maybe I'll go to the game. I think I'm going to go to the, uh, the Jets pass game week too. Um, but yeah, even that game, like if the Jets beat the Panthers, imagine the crowd for the home opener against the Patriots. You know, I just think that that, that week one game is just so big. I mean, the, maybe the biggest week one game that the Jets have had in a long time. I, I honestly, I can't think of a bigger one in the last few years. So yeah, I, I agree. Maybe. 2016 or 2019 although maybe 2016 maybe but even that i mean i i think it's just different there to get something like this where you're starting a new era by facing the old face of the era that you're moving on from is just such a unique circumstance that it probably has happened very few times right if ever in the history of the league i would say the stakes are you know, maybe 2011 against the Cowboys on Sunday Night Football, 10-year anniversary, 9-11. I think that's number one. But outside of that, I think this is the the highest stakes opener they've had. I mean, which is exciting. I like that the Jets are actually in meaningful games, even if it's only for one week. Um, just been sick of playing Buffalo and just, you know, the last few openers haven't been as, as exciting. Um, all right. Well, we'll get out of here. Thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, everybody have a great weekend. Go Jets. Let's hope for us for a a few good Zach Wilson practices that'll hold us over um, until the, the official start of the preseason and then the regular season. So everybody great weekend. Go Jets. Thanks for listening.